Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Connecticut is seen as a national leader in its efforts to reform the criminal justice system, including policies enacted in recent years that affect young people. But advocates say there's more work to be done. Today we talk about how the state responds to children and youth who are involved in the justice system. You can join us too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest today on Zoom, Christina Quaranta, Executive Director of the Connecticut Justice Alliance. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Excited to be here. I understand you became the executive director of this group uh, in January, and you'd been the deputy executive director before then. I was curious how you got involved with working with young people uh, who had uh, some contact with the criminal justice system. Sure. My first experience in working with young people at all was as a teacher, um, almost right out of college. I taught Spanish, um, worked with high school uh, aged kids and realized that I loved working with young people that I spent some time working at Domus inside of their middle school and high school and lots of the young people inside of those schools were system involved and I realized that I really was passionate about that and wanted to figure out how to make a change on a, a broader level. Now, I mentioned you lead the Connecticut Justice Alliance. It used to be called, I believe, the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. And, and recently, the word juvenile has been dropped from the name. Why did you make that decision? Yes, we are so excited about our new name, the Connecticut Justice Alliance. We are in our 20th year as an organization, and we decided that it was time to update our name. We have really grown and transformed in so many different ways over the past two decades. Um, and we've really been working to adapt and address the needs of young people and decided that um, it's, it would be important to drop the word juvenile. We realize that there are many times negative associations with that word, especially if you see a news headline. A lot of the times what follows that is something less than positive. And we know that the language that we use matters. So we decided to hold ourselves to the same expectations that we have of other people, and that's to speak of youth positively. So we are now known as the Connecticut Justice Alliance. We really dropped the juvenile to focus on the justice, and we are excited. When you think about the, the young people that have some contact with the justice system, when you look at your organization, what ages of people are we talking about that, that you are advocating for? Our organization now advocates for young people through the age of 24. Prior to this year and the name change and new logo, we were just advocating for folks through age 17. So that is an important change. And why the change, Christina? The change really reflects the, the years of research of brain science that, that talks about young people 
uh, and their brains not being developed until at least the age of 25. If we're talking about holding young people responsible for and asking young people to hold themselves accountable for mistakes or choices that they have to make, we need to take into account how old they are, right? And really what their age is and what they're capable of in terms of logical thinking and decision-making. So we decided that really our advocacy efforts would be best served through the age of 24. When we talked about the decision to drop juvenile from your name, and you mentioned that uh, often uh, when it's used, it's in a derogatory manner, but this is also a term that's used in the court system. People may think of uh, children who have contact with the system as juvenile delinquents, and that's what you wanted to get away from, Christina? We did want to get away from that. I think it's important to use people-centered language and to use positive language, especially when you're talking about young people. I think, and we as an organization really believe that if someone is entering a space, whether it's a courtroom, a classroom, they're coming home and they're known as a juvenile delinquent, how helpful is that? And really to reflect on, you know, they are a young person first, and then we can talk about, you know, what happened to them and maybe what choices that were not possibly the most positive were made. Mm -hmm. Again, you're hearing Christina Quaranta. Again, she's executive director of the Connecticut Justice Alliance. As we talk about how our state responds to children and youth involved in the justice system, if you have a question or a comment, you can join us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You can also join us on by calling in 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Christina, I've mentioned several times now about uh, children and youth that may have contact with the justice system. And so I wanted to break that down a little bit more and talk about what we know about children who may be detained at one of the detention centers, whether it's Bridgeport or Hartford, or uh, young people at Manson and York, uh, two uh, prisons that are operated by the Department of Correction. Right. So we know a lot about the young people who are detained and incarcerated by either by the judicial branch or by the Department of Corrections. And the important distinction or difference there is that you are housed inside of a Department of Correction facility if you are charged as an adult as a youth, so age 15 uh, through the age of 17. We know if we're talking about first sort of who the young people are, um, that Black youth make up a majority of the incarcerated population, whether we're talking about who is inside of judicial branch facilities or the Department of Corrections. We also know a lot about the young people's histories prior to incarceration, that many of them face situations of neglect, faced, faced times when they were not necessarily uh, economically secure right in their families. And that has to do with a lot of systemic racism, systemic inequities. We know that lots of the young people um, experience difficulties with mental health, with substance use disorders, um, we know that education has not been fantastic for them because of how education is funded in their communities. Um, and then we know that when they enter the system, a lot of the time, times the issues that they have come in with, that they've brought to the table because of what has happened to them as, as young people or younger people, aren't always addressed in the best way, right? To address the whole child, the family, so that when they actually exit that facility, or that, that prison, right, detainment center, whatever it looks like, they're often exiting either um, in a worse place or sort of the same, which absolutely should not be the goal 
um, when the state decides to detain someone for a period of time. So you just outlined what would be seen as root causes of some of the behaviors that lead children into the juvenile justice system, Christina. Yes. Yeah. And so when we think about how to help children and youth in our state, you know, I was actually away last week, uh, but still connected uh, to the news and, you know, really troubled by what the latest story out of Hartford, where that uh, three-year-old child uh, was killed in a drive-by, another 16-year-old, I believe, also killed in a separate shooting. And right now, they don't know who the perpetrators are. But when you hear this kind of violence happening in communities, how the state, how the city of Hartford and others should be responding to the community versus finding the perpetrator and locking them up. Can you talk about that related to what you just outlined, the root causes before something like this happens? I can, and I was, and we are very sad in this organization to hear the loss of those two precious lives. And you are right, at first people, and rightfully so, you know, want to find who the perpetrator is, figure out who did this. But I think it is very important to look at the big picture and address the root causes, because if we're only going downstream to figure out who committed this particular incident, we're not going to stop them from happening altogether. The only way to do that is to address root causes and what is the actual issue that drives young people or whoever may have committed this crime to commit acts of violence or to make poor choices. And what we look at at the Justice Alliance is really focusing on identifying on what are young people's housing needs, their economic needs, what type of opportunities have they been offered and been able to take advantage of, what type of positive influences exist in their communities, what type of trauma have they been witness to or experienced, and focusing on investment of young people and pushing that with city and state leaders to say we really need to be focusing on asking young people and families what they need and being able to step up to the plate and give that to invest in them instead of incarceration and instead of trying to address the problem once we have already gone too far and too far looks like the loss of two young people's lives that never should have happened in the first place. I'm glad you mentioned trauma, Christina, because we know, especially in recent years, uh, reports from the Office of Child Advocate and others where children who have been traumatized, uh, whether it's uh, family issues or issues in their community, and then when they are sent to uh, Manson or York or even the Connecticut Juvenile Training School when it was opened, this idea of being traumatized, but then also how they were treated at these centers and how that further exacerbates that trauma. Christina, can you talk about that? What does it look like for young people incarcerated at Manson in York today? I can. So young people that are charged as adults and are incarcerated inside of Manson Youth or York Correctional experience, and that has been, and these have been illustrated in the reports out of the Office of the Child Advocate that you can find right on their website, but long periods of times of solitary confinement, lack of access to mental health care, lack of access to education. These, these inequities and problems with the system have existed long before the pandemic, and now they are highlighted and have been worsened by the pandemic. So I'll give you an example of young people inside of Manson Youth. There is a status that's called confined to quarters, and 
the Office of the Child Advocate found that young people were being held in their cells anywhere from 18 to 23 hours per day. And that status can last for that young person anywhere between one to 30 days, right? And they and people are placed on that status regardless of any type of disability or special education needs. They are forced to eat meals inside of their cell. They're not participating in physical education. There's a real problem that needs to be addressed inside of the Department of Corrections when we talk about the treatment of all people and especially young people. That is a system that is built to to work with adults and is not equipped in any way, shape or form to house, rehabilitate, treat young people. We really need to focus as a state on removing all young people from the Department of Corrections and focusing on what can we do to improve the conditions of confinement before we do that? And how can we help those that are um, you know, 18 and older, 21 and older inside of there as well, because we can't forget about those folks. You mentioned the pandemic exacerbating some issues, Christina. Can you elaborate more about when we look at juvenile incarceration, has there been a drop uh, in the pandemic? And what are we seeing now as things are starting uh, to get back to normal? So during the pandemic, we we kept our eye on who was being admitted to detention, who was being admitted to secure facilities that the judicial branch runs, so that's young people, and who was being admitted inside of incarcerated inside of Department of Corrections facilities. It looks like at the moment, prior to the pandemic, the census at Manson Youth was around 50 young men, and now it's been hovering around 30 or so, mid-30s. There's a drop there, so one could question as to why. Um, I think it's important if we look at numbers, we need to also pay attention to the fact that while the population may have been dropping inside of facilities across the state, whether it's run by Department of Corrections or Judicial, who is being incarcerated still and detained? And that's black and brown people. So if you were to look inside of any of those facilities, that is who you would see. And that point often gets lost. Uh, and I think what, what I can do is post some, some facts and figures right up on our Twitter at the CTJA. So folks can see what numbers looked like in 2020, 2019, 2018, et cetera, and kind of look at, okay, what was daily population? What was the length of stay like for young people? And, and, and look at those. At the top of the show, I mentioned that Connecticut has been seen as a leader in uh, both uh, criminal justice reform and also looking at how uh, how uh, the system treats young offenders, Christina. We know with Raise the Age back in 2010 and then 2012. I'm just wondering if you can talk more about how we've seen juvenile incarceration drop because of these policy changes. Yeah, so what is happening in Connecticut and began to happen when we raise the age and in years following as different policies and laws are passed is that we started to only remove youth from their communities that were very high risk. We changed uh, some of the laws that were allowing young people to go into detention, for example, that were maybe um, human trafficking victims or they were self-harming, things like that. Detention is not the place for those young people that they really need to be seen by mental health providers and receive that type of care. Um, I it's important to look at Connecticut as we are really narrowing down the number of young people. And so we're now at our highest risk, highest need young people, folks who come from communities that really have been intentionally ignored when it comes to who is allocated resources. We need to pay attention to that and focus on what are the services uh, and treatment that they are receiving 
before, during, and after a, a period of detainment or incarceration if we are looking to change um, sort of how the, the justice systems in Connecticut work as a whole and how we are um, in terms of being healthy as, as a state. In this pandemic, Christina, have you seen instances where children and young people are released from one of these facilities and the support system, support services aren't there because of the pandemic? We have seen that. We have have heard from different folks in conversation of young people being released from a facility and not being able to access a program quickly or at all, depending on the, what they have access to virtually um, or maybe just a specific program that they wanted to use or would be beneficial for them. It's closed. However, that looks. Um, and I think if we even sort of think broader to school and education and what that's looked like for young people over the past year plus and and what has been happening in terms of access to education and how important that is for young people and remaining engaged. I mentioned earlier about the Connecticut Juvenile Training School that's been closed now for a couple of years. So for for young people uh, who commit an offense and it's not as serious to send them to Manson or York, Christina, what are the programs that exist now that the training school has been closed to help young people? Sure. So right now, if if a young person needs to be removed from their community for a period of time, they are sent to uh, different facilities in that that acronym there is regions. And those are those are operated by the judicial branch. Those are either staff or hardware secure facilities that are located throughout the state. So young people can be removed uh, in, in placed in there for a period of time. I think what we are focusing on at the Justice Alliance, I know others are too, is well, let's talk about what exists as alternatives to incarceration. Let's talk about how we can expand upon and build on the continuum of care that we have for young people in Connecticut that does not involve completely removing a young person from family and points of contact and putting them inside of a, a facility sort of just to, for a period of time in order to correct behavior. How can we do that better? Other states have found ways to do that. I, I encourage Connecticut to do the same. And we have been working with, with legislators, with other stakeholders to figure out how to expand that continuum so that we are treating the whole child. There's 24 seven access to care, et cetera. You're hearing Christina Quaranta again here on Where We Live. She's executive director of the Connecticut Justice Alliance. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear how this group includes the perspective of young people when talking about justice reform. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about juvenile justice reform in Connecticut. Amber tweeted, scarcity and lack of safety and supports for young people can lead to violence. As a community, we must invest in addressing those things to break the cycle. My guest on Zoom is Christina Quaranta, Executive Director with the Connecticut Justice Alliance. Now, Christina, I know that your organization has really put young people front and center in terms of hearing their perspective when we talk about reform. Can you explain the program that you have where you're hearing from young people firsthand? 
I'm so happy to talk about the Justice Advisors who we work with. They are a fantastic group of young people. We are on our third group at the moment. We started this work back in 2017. They are young folks ages 18 through 24. Uh, a couple are a little bit older. Um, they all have first or second hand system experience and they lead with their own expertise in terms of what has happened in their lives, friends and family's lives, and are really there to work with us to inform what our advocacy agenda should be and should and what our public policy asks should be. And their perspective uh, helped you in the release of this report, I believe last year. And so when young people think about what can help them and their peers uh, before they even get involved with the system, ways to prevent that, what are some of the, the priorities that they've uh, mentioned, Christina? Right, we released a report, which you can find right on our website in June of last year, and it talks about investing in young people. We had our campaign, Invested in ECT. When we talked to young people throughout the state for the past couple of years, in all different spaces, they really identified needing a mentor, needing someone who had been through what they had been through, and sort of came out on the other side, so that looks more like a credible messenger, to really talk to, have someone to bounce ideas off of, um, and really to have those folks be in charge of running programs that they might either have to go to or would like to enroll in, because it's it just is much more successful if you have someone you can relate to. Lots of kids talked about having more resources, free centers to access, fresh food stores, um, different types of programs that weren't just sports and basketball, because I think a lot of times you know, no ill will, but a lot of cities and towns say, oh, good, we have a sports program. Kids can just do that. And that's not enough because all young people like all different types of things. So young people really mentioned wanting to be able to help their family, to buy a house for their parents, to be able to uh, provide food for siblings, things like that. Um, and they just talked about really having programs that were respective of their needs, having folks that work there that looks like them and that could understand where they came from. One of the justice advisors for the Connecticut Justice Alliance is joining us on Zoom, Fernisha Smith. Uh, Fernisha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So talk about your role and why you wanted to get involved in this way. So I'm a justice advisor with the Alliance. And as Christina mentioned, justice advisors are primarily from the ages of 18 to 25. But we have since then extended that. Um, who have first or secondhand experience with the justice system. And we basically are here to bring our experiences to the table. That way we can um, help the justice staff expand on their ideas that they already have and maybe include some new ones to try to um, decriminalize our youth. When you look at uh, your peers and your lived experience for Nisha, what do you think should be the number one priority to help young people? Um, I feel like there isn't just a number one priority. Mm. There's a mix um, of priorities that need to be met. Many include um, the systemic racism that's already in place. And with that, we'd have to address the um, economic insecurity, housing insecurity, um, and many things of that nature. Do you feel like uh, young people in our state have hope that they they believe that the system can change? I honestly don't think many do have hope, which is why it's important for us to instill that in them 
and probably uh, with them seeing people who do have first and secondhand experience who have made it to the other side um, and are able to shed positive light on them that would um, most likely help them gain that hope. Christina, I wonder if you could jump in there and um, just respond to what Fernisha shared about, you know, the importance of, of how people, young people are feeling in terms of whether it's uh, getting help or seeing others caring about their situation. Yes, I think it's important for all of us, all adults, to pay attention to the message that we're sending to young people and to show them that their lives matter, no matter where they have come from, what types of decisions they have made that we are willing to invest in them, that we're not going to give up on them and to help to provide that hope for them when they may have lost it for whatever reason. And just show that we are here, we are supportive. We we will step up to the plate and fund what is needed. Um, And we are partners with them. We're not here to work against them. Fernisha, when we think about incarceration, you know, some people may say, well, don't do the crime and then you won't be sent to a detention center or to a prison. So I'm wondering if you can talk about instead of incarcerating young people, what are some alternatives that can help them? Um, Right. So an alternative to incarceration would be um, for one to try to address those root issues that we spoke about before. And I think if we address the root issues, that would help decrease the criminal activity that we see happening with our youth to begin with. Um, But if it does go that far, then there are other things that could be done, such as helping them with their mental health or um, just recommending other resources and activities and programs within our communities for them. It's important to keep them involved in the community rather than trying to separate them from the community. Mm. Uh, Christina, uh, when I think about uh, juvenile justice reform, the emphasis on what's called restorative justice, can you talk about some of the programs that exist in our state that follow that model? I can. I'm not I'm not exactly specific with program names, but I know that many spaces that operate programs for young people operate in a restorative practice, right? So they are all about figuring out, okay, what went wrong and how can you make it right with the person or the community that you harmed? So does that look like going back to do community service? Are you writing a letter of apology? That happens a lot with juvenile review boards and young people um, are able to access those in many of our 169 cities and towns here in Connecticut instead of going before a judge. Restorative justice is so important because I think it, you know, Prison doesn't do what people think it does. It doesn't actually force the person who may have or did uh, commit a crime to to reckon with and apologize to the person that it happened to. Um, And restorative justice in many ways is actually uh, a lot harder of a route to go than just to spend some time inside of a detention facility or a period of incarceration to actually have to repair and recognize what went wrong and move forward is a, is a lot more work, teaches a lot more skills. I'm glad you brought up juvenile review boards. I had a chance to observe that a couple of years ago when I was a reporter. Can you describe that to our listeners uh, and how that works and why that's so impactful, Christina? Yeah, so in Bridgeport, where our office is located, we have um, the Juvenile Review Board right at our fingertips, right in our building. Um, so young people who have committed a certain type of crime or who have expected to or suspected of um, 
are able to go in front of a board of community folks. So that might look like a teacher, a parent, maybe a police officer's on that board. Just a wide variety of folks and kind of talk about what happened. You hear from the, from the person who it happened to. So maybe the victim in that situation of what they would like to see changed, what they need to feel better about what happened. And so maybe that looks like the young person agreeing to then um, maybe they're writing a letter of apology. Maybe they're doing some community service around the town. Um, maybe they do a report and recognize what it looks like to drive recklessly. Like I, so it's really focusing on the solution and it's so important to be solution focused and to then be able to connect that young person to whatever type of resources needed. Fernisha talked about that, to be able to say, okay, Based on our conversation here, it looks like you might need a better connection to mental health. It looks like you might need a mentor. Perhaps you need some space to go uh, work out after school. You just need that outlet. So it's really working on the whole child, the whole situation and making sure that everyone involved sort of feels comfortable with the outcome. If the young person doesn't follow through with that, there are um, other ways that the court process can then intervene. Uh, we're in the middle of a legislative session. I know that justice advisors are giving good perspective on ways to help young people. And so for Nisha, for policymakers who may be listening, you know, what do you want to hear from them? What do you want to see them uh, prioritize this legislative session? For this legislative session, we'd love for them to prioritize um, many things. One would be trying to remove SROs from schools. Um, and not just removing them, but, you know, replacing them with credible messengers and finding different ways to invest our resources and our money. Um, we'd also like them to prioritize um, raising the minimum age, because right now many people may not be aware, but you're allowed to arrest a child um, at the age of seven. And, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning of this interview, Connecticut is supposed to be known as one of those states who are leading in this area, however, we are not when it comes to this particular um, priority. Um, it has not been prioritized in Connecticut. And so it would be very wonderful if we could raise that minimum age of arrest because there's many um, research and facts behind it that show it's just not um, appropriate at the moment. I'm glad you brought that up, Christina, this, uh, Fernisha, because Christina, this idea that a seven-year-old could be arrested, what are other states doing in terms of, of raising that jurisdiction? Um, it, other states uh, across the country, even our neighbors um, over in Massachusetts, New York, other places are looking at and have raised the age to at least 12 years old. I am disappointed to say that uh, a bill came out two weeks ago on the Judiciary Committee here in Connecticut where they only agreed to raise the age to 10 uh, instead of 12. So that is something that we are going to go back next session and even see what we can do this session to get that change to 12. Um, even internationally, the United Nations has recognized the age of 14 as the minimum age of arrest. So we have a long way to go and it really shouldn't be that way. Uh, before we head to break, uh, Christina, anything else you wanted to add when we think about what lawmakers can tackle this session? We know there's been you know, so much money from the federal government uh, to help uh, states in the pandemic. Is that being invested in the programs that could help the young people we're focused on this hour? So far, what I can see, it, it hasn't been. Um, I, I'm sure there are plans to look at that. I, I, I don't like to assume that. I would like to highlight for lawmakers and 
folks that have a have a decision making voice in the budget to highlight what Fernisha and I have said is that it's so important to invest in young people, families and communities instead of just offering incarceration. That is what folks need. It's important to listen to young people and families and figure out what should best be done um, and, and really use the resources that communities are deserving of. That's Christina Quaranta, again, Executive Director with the Connecticut Justice Alliance. Uh, again, she mentioned listening to young people on with us was one of the justice advisors for the organization, Fernisha Smith. Thank you both so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we turn to the influx of migrant youth at the border and hear from a ProPublica reporter. Before we get to that, it's the final week of Connecticut Public Radio's spring membership campaign. Uh, where we live brings you conversations about people in our state. We talk to our residents about the stories that impact us here at home. We also provide context to issues that affect our country too. If you appreciate these kinds of conversations, support where we live and all the great programs on Connecticut Public. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. You are listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katie Tularski here with Carmen Baskoff. And uh, we're asking for your support during this April membership campaign uh, to support great programming like Where We Live, which Carmen is a producer. Um, we're so grateful for her and her team and um, the show and um, you know all the information that uh, Where We Live has been able to um, you know, put out to the state of Connecticut, to listeners uh, throughout this pandemic year. It's been a quite a strange year, so much news, um, and so important to have this place to, um, to um, have conversations and, and, and important information. 1-800-584-2788 um, is the number to call to support where we live and all of our programming here on Connecticut Public Radio. Um, the website, wnpr.org slash donate. Again, the number is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online, wnpr.org slash donate. Um, that's a great way to kind of check out uh, some pictures of some of the thank you gifts that we uh, can thank you with, including um, an exciting new uh, Where We Live mug. Uh, definitely check that one out. Um, but the important thing is that you're supporting Connecticut Public Radio. Um, I think, as Katie was saying, it has been like such a crazy and strange year. And, you know, I, I've always felt like, you know, the, the shows we're doing and the work we're doing on where we live has been important, but you know, this last year has really made me feel like, you know, both working here and as a listener, this has really been a place I've turned to, to try to understand what's going on in such a confusing situation. Um, I know, we have had so many questions, you know, for, since the pandemic started about what's going on, um, you know, what's the science, what's the policy. And, you know, personally, I've loved working on the show, um, you know, being in a position where I can call up some of the best experts around and say, look, this is something we don't understand. We want to know more. Can you come on the show and can you explain it? And, you know, having that place where we can have that long form conversation with the experts and really get those answers that we all have been depending on to know how to live our lives safely this past year. Um, so, it, you know, I, I feel like that where we live is very much uh, the place, one of those places that I turn to, and you probably, if you're listening right now, turn to too, to kind of get that full understanding of the world around you. And then of course, that's supplemented by the national news you get from NPR, um, all of the great content you get on Connecticut Public Radio. Um, but we are only able to do that because members step up and make 
pledges of support. Um, again, you can do that. You can do a one-time donation or even better, you can become a, um, I think it's called, what is it, monthly donor, um, where you're basically making kind of recurring donations. Um, you can kind of set it, forget it, and uh, just keep supporting the radio that you depend on. Um, so you can go to wnpr.org slash donate. Um, we have a lot of cool thank you gifts we can thank you with. Or if you want to go old school, you can give us a call 1-800-584-2788. Yes, sustaining membership is uh, really important Absolutely. to us here at Connecticut Public Radio because um, it, it lets us um, know that we have this base of dollars, this base of support that uh, we can rely on to make funding decisions moving forward. So it is um, it is so important for us to have those sustaining members. Um, and Carmen, something I was thinking of too when you were talking was um, the fact that uh, the governor has been on almost monthly since the beginning of the pandemic and other elected officials, you talked about scientists, um, just this place for people to um, ask questions and to get updates because things have been changing um, you know, week to week, even as, as, you know, the vaccines were being rolled out, it, it was one thing and then it was another thing. So just to have, okay, what is the latest on, you know, what Connecticut's vaccine rollout is, um, who's eligible, um, and, and, you know, other uh, just opportunities to call up and ask important questions to our elected officials. So um, such a public service that is offered with where we live. Um, again, we hope that you appreciate this programming. We hope you appreciate all the work uh, that Carmen and, and Tess Terrible and the team uh, put into making this show happen every day and support it uh, if you're able to, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788, or we're about to head back to the show, but I did just love what you said, Katie, and I, I think something that's really amazing about where we live, too, is that we are a listener call-in program. We do take your calls and questions, and so when we have those elected officials, we're not only, you know, Lucy's asking them, uh, you know, tough, hard-hitting questions, but there's also the opportunity for you to get your say, too, so if you value that, the number to call is 1-800-584-2788 or go online, wnpr.org slash donate. Click on that button and thanks for your support. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining me now on Zoom is Dara Lynn. She's a reporter with ProPublica who covers immigration policy. Dara, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be on. It's been a great discussion so far. Uh, I really appreciate you giving us some time. I know you've been covering immigration uh, through many different uh, presidential administrations. And here we are again, hearing about a surge in migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. It was an issue in the Obama administration, of course, in the Trump administration. And now the Biden administration is dealing with this influx. What's causing this surge now, Dara? So when we talk about increases in the number of people coming to the U.S.-Mexico border, it's usually you know, when we're talking about it as a policy problem, uh, it's useful to talk a little bit about like specifically who's coming and kind of why it's why it's being seen as a challenge. And in this case, uh, in starting, you know, late last year, but certainly going into the first weeks of the Biden administration, the number of children who were coming to the U.S. without their parents or guardians started rising pretty rapidly and because of the covid pandemic the system that you know is in place to take care of those kids had been severely limited by capacity constraints so we quickly hit a point where the u.s government was bottlenecking in terms of you know the process that it had for getting children who are apprehended by border patrol agents 
into an environment that's much more, you know, supportive of child welfare uh, was greatly strained and kind of breaking down. So that's been where that's kind of been a focus as a policy problem. There's a broader conversation about, you know, whenever kind of numbers go up, uh, what, you know, what causes that, whether that should, whether the U.S. should be acting more aggressively, whether other countries should be acting more aggressively to interdict those. And, you know, there are a lot of different stories you can tell about why people might be coming now, uh, some of which we have some evidence for, some of which we have less evidence for. But migration is, you know, extremely complicated. And there are, you know, certainly plenty of reasons why someone might feel the need to get out of Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador right now. Uh, the, you know, the long term, how to address how to kind of change the situations in those countries so that people feel less compelled to leave happens on a very, very different, much longer timeline than the question of what happens once people have arrived in the U.S. and what, you know, does the U.S. have capacity to take care of them, which is why that's been the really urgent focus over the last several weeks. When you talk about policy, um, how the Trump administration handled people coming from those countries when they showed up at the border versus the Biden administration, specifically children, Dara, has there been a change? Um, so the Trump administration used the pandemic to uh, activate a very like pretty obscure provision of federal law that said that the introduction of people could be prohibited because they were coming from a place where there was an infectious disease. And so what it's what that's done is that, and this is still in place to a large extent, uh, people who are apprehended by Border Patrol coming into the U.S. without papers are just kind of summarily expelled. They're not given, they're not formally deported, but they're also not given the chance to ask for asylum and try to go through that process of, of you know, getting legal status in the United States. Because there are separate laws governing, governing unaccompanied children, uh, a federal judge found in November that it was illegal. It violated those laws for the Trump administration to try to apply this system to children. Uh, that order was lifted shortly after Joe Biden was inaugurated and the Biden administration chose not to reinstitute expulsions of children. So we currently have a system that looks right now for children like it did in 2019 and previous, paired with a system that is still in pandemic mode for some families and for all single adults. And so the there's some evidence out there that families that would otherwise be coming as, you know, as entire families to the border, the parents are instead choosing to send children on alone because they know that the child can't be expelled, whereas the family could be. Um, but it's, you know, it, we don't really know what kind of, how much of a role that is playing. We just know that there is this, you know, resource constraint and that the combination of federal law and the Biden administration's choice not to like push the envelope on that means that children are being treated under standard immigration law right now. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. Dara, I know you've been reporting on how the Border Patrol, there's a law in place where they can only hold unaccompanied children for so many hours. And then the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services needs to find a place for them. And there's quite a bottleneck. And so where are these children being sent? So the because the law says that they can't be except in emergency circumstances in border patrol custody for more than 72 hours you know there's obviously an imperative for the department of health and human services to 
build up its capacity so that there's somewhere else for them to go because when that capacity is limited there's just no op opportunity but there's there's no alternative but for border patrol to be holding them in these very overcrowded facilities that aren't really designed for children to be spending any time in at all so what what hhs has done is to in addition to trying to slowly ramp back up its network of licensed care providers, you know, to increase those capacity restrictions that were put in place during the pandemic. It's also opened up a bunch of emergency intake shelters that operate under lower, you know, like laxer standards for health and safety. They don't have to be state licensed. Uh, in some cases, with the newest facilities they've opened, it's not actually clear what standards they're being held to at all. And they're being stood up very, very quickly. And so there have been concerns that, you know, these, that even though there is on the one hand, an impair, like a definitely consensus among a lot of child advocates that anywhere in HHS custody is better than anywhere in Border Patrol custody, just because you have an agency that's oriented toward child welfare, rather than one that's oriented toward immigration enforcement, that the facilities that are being stood up now, if there aren't plans for how to turn them into places where the resources that the Alliance was talking about earlier exist, where people can, where children who have often been in traumatic circumstances can get mental health support, where they can get legal support with their court cases. Um, if those standards, if there aren't plans for those standards being put in place, you can easily have a situation where something that, you know, corners were cut because they needed to be put up as quickly as possible soon kind of become this, you know, eroding standard for the system as a whole because they just are, they perpetuate as these kind of shadowy, mm -hmm. laxer standard facilities. Yeah, that's not good to hear that the standards uh, aren't, aren't in place. Uh, do you expect this surge to continue, Dara? We've got 30 seconds. It it's very difficult to predict, but certainly if the Biden administration isn't currently planning for more children than they currently have, it's very easy to see that this situation could recur in three months. That's Dara Lind, reporter with ProPublica. We'll tweet out links to her reporting on the surge at the border. Dara, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Today's show produced by Test Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's the final week of our spring membership campaign. Support where we live. Here's the way to do it. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Carmen Baskoff. I'm one of the producers of the show, and I'm here with Katie Tolarski and Kat Pastor. Um, and we're taking a few minutes of your time to ask you to reflect back on the show that you've just been listening to. And, you know, if this is the sort of thing that you tune into Connecticut Public Radio every day, or maybe you download the podcast and you listen to this um, to get this, you know, well-rounded, in-depth understanding of your state, your world, um, and everything in between. If that's why you listen to shows like Where We Live, um, we hope you'll consider uh, maybe stepping up and making a pledge of support uh, to help us keep bringing you the programming that you rely on um, and that you turn to um, every day. So, so you know, the, the way we do this is we're listener-supported. Um, the uh, donations by individual listeners are the single largest uh, source of funding for us. And so we really rely on people like you making that decision to say, I want to step up and uh, help put where we live on the air and put all the other programming you hear on uh, Connecticut Public Radio and NPR on the air and keep it keep it there. So 
If you are in a position to do so, uh, we ask for your pledge of support. The number to call is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to WNPR.org. There's a donate button there. You can click on that and make your pledge of support. And while you are at our website, WNPR.org slash donate, make sure to check out all of our thank you items. Um, we have, of course, mugs and um, things like that, uh, blankets, I think. Um, I think we have a lot of um, maybe some new opportunities this, this time around to support uh, folks in our community. So um, whatever makes sense to you, whatever um, incentivizes you to call and support Connecticut Public Radio, we're asking you to do that now to um, keep this important programming on the air, 1-800-584-2788. Again, that's 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Um, and while you're there, definitely go check out our Where We Live mug. Um, I'm very excited about this. Uh, we, um, if and you- Carmen, subscribe... you guys have a cool new logo. Yes. New theme song. It's been really fun to go through this whole sort of rebranding process with, with yes, you Yes, I'm sure people listening have noticed the new music we're so excited about. We got to work with composer Hannes Brown on- uh, creating brand new music for where we live. And if you subscribe to the podcast, you probably notice also we have a new logo. It's super fun. There's like a little drop pin um, on where we live. Um, and you can get that on your favorite um, mug as well. So, uh, you know, go check that out on wmpr.org slash donate. Get some cool where we live swag. And in the process, you're supporting Connecticut Public Radio, keeping us on air. Again, you go, go to wmpr.org slash donate or give us a call 1-800-584-2788. And thanks.